I think what's what's crazy about this experience is like, you know, I'm not his mom, but he, you know, he was like a son to me in, in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, people feel that when I, they, I've gotten a lot of people at my, my, all my boxes are just filled with messages of people who've been through this. And I just was thinking about, damn, like, what kind of weird sort of club did I just enter, you know? This week on Behind the Lens, a heartbreaking story of loss, personal loss, from our staff reporter, Katie Rechtall. On Monday afternoon, 18-year-old Ravel Andrews was killed in the 2500 block of St. Claude Avenue. Today, a remembrance. As soon as we put the notice out last night, um, the NOPD sent out the photo and I posted it to Instagram and I was getting constant calls from people who knew who he was. He, you know, he's not an unknown character in downtown New Orleans and, um, you know, people who knew him as teachers, people who knew him from the neighborhood, everybody's calling, telling me where he was, or at least sort of like general proximity. And some people were calling me left and right, trying to make sure that the detective had the information to get him. And then it turns out that the mom, his mom turned him in last night. Mm. He didn't know, Ravel didn't know him. He didn't know Ravel. There was no reason. Um, It's just heartbreaking. We lost somebody so bright. And he was extinguished in a matter of minutes, you know, like he didn't even have a chance. His wound was so severe, he did not even have a chance. Oh, God. So. Oh, I'm so sorry, Katie. I feel like you had a rough go of it in the last month. Yeah. Yeah, it's been, it's really hit home. How's your son? I mean, he's destroyed, really. Like, I mean, he's posted probably 400 Instagram posts his story. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. He's posted on Instagram probably 400 different posts about come to me in my dreams, bro. And, you know, uh, well, I'll, you'll always be my son and all this. Like, the, you know, they were so close. They filmed videos of each other every day and pictures. They have pictures and there's all these just giggling pictures of them doing silly things as kids. And that, that that's all they did was just do little pranks to each other and laugh. And it just it doesn't make any sense. Oh. But the sad, sad thing is, is that, you know, older friends of ours are calling him and talking him through how to handle this when you're somebody who's so close to you dies because they've all gone through it. And that's the sad thing that the reality of it is that this is what happens when you have a tight group of friends in New Orleans, apparently, like you lose somebody and you figure out how to mourn 
and then the next time you mourn, but you you've already learned how to suffer such a devastating loss. But I don't, you know, it's just the trauma. People calling saying, "Listen, you know, here's what you have to do," and they I know where you've been. Over and over again, people saying that. I mean, people ask me what we can, they can do, you know. I mean, and I don't know. Like, I, I, the only thing I can really say is just, can you bring him back? You know, that's all there is. You guys feel okay about coming back? I'm sure you want to be back, right? Like, I'm sure Hector wants to be back too. I don't know, you know. My friend of mine went over to feed the cat and the fish last night, and um, and all the boys were hanging outside in the stoop, kind of lost because that's where they always are, you know. So, I mean, his friends are all—they're on group chat nonstop all day. So he's in touch with them, but it'll be good for him to be there in person with them. The, I think what's what's crazy about this experience is like, you know, I'm not his mom, but he, you know, he was like a son to me in, in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, people feel that when I, they, I've gotten a lot of people at my, my, all my boxes are just filled with messages of people who've been through this. And I just was thinking about, damn, like, what kind of weird sort of club did I just enter? You know, did heck? What kind of weird club did Hector and his friends just enter? You know that they have one of their close friends just died. Like that. That's that is that that they're the club is large. The membership is way too big. Does part of you think just stay there and hide out? I don't know if I've had the luxury of those kind of thoughts, you know, like we're, we're very practical about everything right now. It's just like, how do we keep people safe for right now? When is the funeral? How do we properly mourn this child? Did they get the right person? Do they, you know, will they have the right evidence? Is there some justice ahead for him as a person? Uh, you know, as can his memory inspire change in New Orleans? Those kinds of questions, I don't know. Those, that's the biggest we've gotten. Uh, you know, our, whether we'll move or all that. I just, I, I can't. I, I don't know. I can't really imagine it. But I, but it's, it seems. I guess the fact that we can't imagine it also is sort of crazy. Hmm. Tell me, tell us about Ravel. You wrote beautifully about him, but tell us who he was. I mean, you know, like even last week, you know, we're all trying to get all the kids to their summer jobs through the mayor's program, right? And they're so, I had to be back for some, I don't remember, some lens thing. And so we had a pretty, we had a certain time frame that we had to, get it, all the kids dropped off in. I mean, Ravel's the one that's at the bathroom door saying, push it, we gotta get out of here. Like he's the one that's always keeping everything moving. 
Let's push it. Get out. Come on. Miss Kate's in the car. All this stuff like that. All those things. That's Ravel. He keeps everybody in line. No, bro. That's not the way you look at it. Somebody talks back. He says, no, you got to listen. You, what you don't do in that moment, you don't talk back. He teaches he teach them how to. He's like a 35-year-old man mm-hmm. in an 18-year-old body. Mm-hmm. That's how he is all day long. And yet he's so goofy and sweet in a way that's like sort of like the most innocent, wonderful, like there's a video of him from the pool sliding down the slide singing. Like it's he's so lighthearted, but yet also just very like he can be just like, no, that, that, that. And and then also he's the kid who also, you know, is making sure that everybody there there's this really wide breadth of being that he is in every part of it is just such he's just such a wonderful child I just can't even imagine how you can even look at him and say I'm going to end his life today like what the what is wrong with you what is wrong with you how'd you come to have him in your family Hector was going to school with him and he would and a lot of the, those kids from that school would come take the bus home to my house. And then he lived uptown. And, you know, sometimes you don't want to cross a canal after a certain time of night or whatever. I just wasn't in the mood for it. So he would stay over. And then he just started staying over more because his dad started being on the road a lot with Glenn David Andrews. His dad is, is a really gifted re- revert. Andrews the second is a really gifted trombone player so he's on the road with Glenn David all the time and so Ravel started staying there more often and then even when his dad was home he'd he'd stay over there because that's where his stuff was and he was you know he was just he was that was the household Ravel, Hector and me so about he um, kind of came alive in this summer program with uh, theater. Tell us what that was like for you watching that. Yeah, it was funny because two of the kids were placed there. And, um, and you know, they it's for the mayor's summer job program, so they get paid $15 an hour. So Ravel was like, well, hey, I'm going to get paid $15 an hour to learn how to act. And maybe it'll come mm-hmm. in handy. You know, he already has, he also has some stage presence as a sousaphone player. So, and he plays trombone also. And um, so he was like, listen, I'll just, let's just go with it. And then on the first day there, on the drive there, they were like, uh, I don't know, like, what if they put us on stage, all this? They weren't really... I was like, listen, maybe they can put you backstage. Maybe they can have you in the orchestra, like playing... The other kid plays drums, so you could play drums and saxophone or sousaphone. We were talking about it. And then they're like, okay, okay, okay. Well, we're just going to try it. And they get in there, and all the other kids are way younger. They're texting me like, these guys are babies. We're like <laughs> the oldest people. Like Anthony Bean tells them, man... You're, you're a departure for our program, you know, like you guys coming with your tattoos and your little your twists on your head and, you know, you're not who we usually have. But I like your look and I like your attitude. Mm-hmm. And he gave them this whole speech about how they needed to show people that they could do this. And Anthony Bean is a legend, right? So Anthony Bean's presence made them love acting. 
And so suddenly they came home and they're at home writing out on lined paper, in pencil and lined paper, writing out this monologue for the next day because they promised Mr. Bean they were going to do it. I mean, it was amazing, amazing. And then, I mean, that day they had just given their monologues and Quantrell sent me his and... And then I said, well, where's Ravel's? I want to see Ravel's too. So he just he sent it to me at 2.22. He sent it to me. And I said, oh, it was about a kid who d- couldn't do well in school. And I said, well, it's beautiful writing. I know it's a, it ain't you, Mr. A student, right? Because he's such a scholar, right? And he like hearted my little comment hmm. at like 2.30. So we know he was, you know... He was dead shortly after. I, I, I can't even uh, imagine. Like, I thought I would start getting some smart comments back about it, but, like, I didn't hear anything. I mean, I guess they pulled out of the shell station and this guy that had been glaring at them they didn't. They were laughing and joking in the car, and they didn't even imagine that somebody was gonna get in a car and follow them. And this guy came, got in the car, and that little black car, and pulled around next to them, and shot one time in the passenger window, and sped off. And that kid is now in custody, having turned himself in, or his mother turned him in. Yeah, allegedly that's the kid who did that, yeah. It was one shot. For staring, something about staring, I don't understand it. I don't don't get it. Well, that's the hard part, trying to make sense of something that's inexplicable. Right. I'm sorry for your family. Thank you. You know, I was talking to Amanda Aiken, who had that um, trauma-centric school at Crocker. Mm -hmm. And I loved what they did there and how they taught kids to work out their issues. And, you know, that was... She also did universal screening. And I just feel like the idea that we should pay attention to kids and understand if there's not an adult in their life and if understand if they've got really emotional issues and all that stuff. And it sounds like, I mean, I'm sure that they will charge him as an adult, right? So. You think, Nick? Uh, I certainly wouldn't be surprised, but I don't know. I don't know what kind of, how they decide and, and how, like what percentage of, of kids who have been charged with murder over the last, you know, couple of years have have been charged as adults versus kept in the... Because he, he, he campaigned on that, um, you know, not yeah, that, he, that pledge not to do that, but, right, but has yeah, made exceptions he, already. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, it, yeah, like I say, it's hard, it's hard to know. I mean, I think we talked about the Linda Freaky case a little bit. I mean, in that instance, you know, the, those kids clearly... They're not even alleging that they were trying to kill her. You know, they were involved in this kind of thing gone wrong. Um, those kids were a little bit 
older than than this one, but I don't know how how what those different factors how how they weigh them. Right. I think it's been seven or eight years since they've done a, a hearing like that for a fourteen year old. So correct, I may be wrong, Nick, but like it's no. been a long time. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I mean fourteen is is really young. Do they do any sort of like cognitive type stuff on the on the kid side of it in these charging situations, or is it literally just kind of like the heinousness of the? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, that that may be some. Yeah, I'm not sure to what degree. Like, I, I actually do know that uh, oh. the answer to that. They they I think you have to be assessed by three different. Um, psychiatric experts for that for the for a 14 year old to be transferred to adult court uh, and what are they are they um just evaluating competency or is it a broader competency yeah interesting because i know i mean the the, the teens in the in the linda fricky thing they i have no idea what happened prior to them being transferred but they all you know, had a competency a competency hearing after they were transferred in adult court. I think it's different. 14 is a different. Mm-hmm. 15 and 16 have a much more automatic kind of, they can do it more easily. 14, it takes like an, uh, a different level of, of um, complication to transfer. Honestly, like, I asked Katie if she knew where... You know, we all saw this photo be released and we saw like how young this kid looks. Right. And one of my first questions is like, where does he go to school? Because everyone's school, I don't I don't even want to call it like adventure, but like school story in this city can be so complicated. And I think that plays into your, you, you know, the the adults in your life and the support systems that you have in your life. And um you know, whenever I see anything like this happen in the city, and I'm thinking about a couple ki- cases and kids in particular where you can look back and you can see how their education was disrupted throughout their life, and you just wonder how it, what you know, how much that weighed into things that have happened later in their life and decisions that they made, decisions that they made as you know, they're kids. Um, so I think I just think that's something that that's always constantly churning in my brain um I feel like that that if we're going to talk about education today that's what what we should be talking about and you know like um I I think we're seeing now obviously the pandemic was a huge disruption for this entire generation of kids and we are gonna that's just gonna play out in in ways that are unknown over the years and you know it's been interesting to me to consider you know at what age the pandemic hit you right like in Mm -hmm. your in your child development I like how long is it going to take for us to figure out what that did to five right versus eight year olds versus 11 year olds right I mean the critical right like I I think about the the people that my heart was breaking for were single moms of school age and younger like preschool kids who single moms who had to work service jobs and who had to leave kids home in New Orleans. And there, maybe there was a computer, but there was only one. And connectivity was an issue. Those were, And I was like, that's the cohort that's going to 
be really the most affected. And then as we, as we have come to see, all these kids are paying the price. They've all paid a price in some way. And I think you're right, Marta, it's going to be, it's going to unfold over the next decade or more where we're going to see the effects of what, what this meant, what it really meant. And we, and we are seeing new, you know, there's new citywide and school effort to increase mental health resources. I think we're seeing a lot of steps in those directions. Um, you know, we're also seeing one little charter niche thing I can tell you here is that we've not, we've heard discussions about the district helping charters capitalize on Medicaid reimbursements for mental health and other services, um, which I have to say is funny to me now because that's something that schools have been doing for 10 or 15 years but each school was learning how to individually do it and like just now or not just now are we talking about it but it's like one of those things that should have been figured out a long time ago and it shouldn't have been like Warren Easton figured it out and opened a clinic and then this other school figured it out and opened a clinic like this is when you decentralize and everyone has to solve these problems on their own you know that that creates more issues and wasted time and wasted resources. And obviously I think everyone is wanting to head in the right direction with providing more resources for kids. And, you know, there's definitely more focus on mental health we see in our schools today. Absolutely. Um, And those are all positive trends. Um, That's just, I just had to point out that like that thinking about using Medicaid money thing, like coming up now is kind of this big story and this big conversation piece is like, how are we not circling the, the wagons on that before? Like how, you know, how right. did that take so long? That's right. just a, you know, that's just one example of kind of the stuff we're always talking about on this podcast, actually. <laughs> but Well, it's a hot, hard summer so far. Yeah, no kidding. And it's not even July. Hang in there, everyone. Alrighty, we'll talk to you later. Okay. All right. Bye. Bye, guys. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Haldman. Thanks to our guest this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel, education reporter Marta Jusen, and staff reporter Katie Rechtal, who spoke to us from a family home in Minnesota. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.